Good morning. I'm going to move this out of the way. Um, Dave, thanks for leading that song and slowing us down just a little bit since I almost hyperventilated on the other song with a mask on. Like, man, I got to sit down here. Yeah. Glad that you are with us in person. Glad that you are with us online as well. What a great day to be worshiping together. Seeing some new faces here, and a few more are feeling more comfortable coming back to uh, worship uh, together, and I hope that uh, more of you will be joining us uh, as well real soon. If you are old enough, you might remember a, a sappy old saying that was real popular, like I think about the 70s or so. You saw it on posters. You saw it all, all over the place. It was, if you love something, set it free. If it comes back to you, it's yours. If it doesn't, it never was. Remember that? Yeah. And then a few years later, somebody added an addendum to that quote. If it just sits in your living room and messes up your stuff, eats your food, uses your car, takes your money, and never behaves like you actually set it free in the first time, you're either married to it or you gave birth to it. Now, we're in this series, Who Is This Man? We're talking about just how different Jesus was and how different his teaching still is. And I'll ask you the question, how do you know if somebody loves you? Or how do you know if you really love someone else? I mean, do you hold them tight? Do you set them free? How do you know if you love and are loved? And what does Jesus say about that? And I'm going to make a statement that I think we all will agree with, and that is most people have a distorted view of God. In fact, I really should say all people have a distorted view of God to a certain extent because none of us have God figured out. You know, there's things that God is constantly revealing about himself, things that we're constantly learning about God, and things that we, we're learning to appreciate. So, yeah, we all have a, a bit of a distorted view of God, and one of the most common distortions of God is the concept that God is all about the rules, that God is all about us keeping rules. And if I can just learn to keep the rules, then me and God are on good terms. And that's really what a lot of people think religion's about, just as long as me and God are on good terms. You know, I just want to be sure that God is hearing my prayers, answering some of my prayers. I want to, I want to understand, I want to feel like, okay, me and God, we're, we're good. You know, what's, what's the secret? What's the password? What's the PIN number that I need to be sure that, that me and God, we're on the same page? And when that becomes your sole focus... You start asking questions like, well, is this a sin? And is that a sin? Or just tell me where the line is. Just tell me what a sin is and what a sin's not, and then I'll know where to uh, look for a loophole. Because we're really good at finding loopholes. We're really good at finding workarounds and shortcuts. No, and this this always wrong? Is there, is there some situation where maybe it's okay to do this, even though I've been told it's a sin? Because again, here's what we're good at. When someone gives us a hard and fast rule, we are really good at finding the exceptions. So we eventually end up asking God, 
How close can I get to sin without actually sinning? How close can I get to making God mad without actually making God mad? That's what I want to know. And what I really want to know is, how can I live like I want to live? How can I call the shots, but still me and God kind of be on good terms? And we condense our relationship with God down to our obedience to God. And I'm not talking about things like heaven and hell, those kind of issues. I'm just talking about our relationship. You know, how, how God and I are. How close am I to God? Is He hearing my prayers? And I judge my relationship with God by my obedience to God. If I can keep God's laws, me and God are good. And some of you are probably thinking, uh, yeah, <laughs> right. I mean, isn't that what religion's about? I mean, what's wrong with that? I'll tell you what's wrong with that. Other than maybe your dog, who really obeys you? You know, who really obeys you? You say, well, I have the best boyfriend. I have the best girlfriend. Why? Because they obey me. No, you wouldn't say that. You know, my marriage is so great. What's great about your marriage? Well, my wife obeys me. My husband obeys me. We, we don't think that way. We would never say that. When it comes to relationships, we understand you don't build a relation solely on obedience. Now, even your kids. You know, why do you get along so well with your parents? Why is that? Well, I always obey them. That's the only reason. Or you see an older parent with older children. You know, how have you kept so close to your kids all this time? Well, they just always obeyed me. No. That's not what relationships are built on. And the closest I could think of was maybe an employer-employee relationship. You know, she's a great employee because she always does what I tell her to do. But if there's any kind of relational component there, that, that's not built on obedience either. There is, I'm going to make a statement here, and I'm going to stand behind it. There is no healthy relationship in your life that's built solely on obedience. That's not how we relate to people. We understand there's so much more to that, to relationships, than just obedience. In fact, I would suggest the very best relationships in your life don't really have much of anything to do with obedience. The concept doesn't really ever come up. And yet, when it comes to God, it is so easy for us to reduce it all to, well, I'm keeping the rules. I'm obeying the laws. And, you know, God is up there somewhere. I'm not sure where exactly. And he's made all these rules. And as long as I keep all the rules, me and God are good to go. Now, all of you who are watching online and you're just itching to write something in the comments, and all of you who are in here wearing a mask and you're leaning over to the person beside you going, yeah, but wait, okay? Just hold off for just a minute because we're going to take a look at just how powerfully different Jesus' teaching is on this concept. But before we get to the teaching of Jesus, I want, to, I want to go back to the Old Testament for just a second, because I think the Old Testament is where a lot of these kind of assumptions kind of come into play. And it comes from God's arrangement with ancient Israel. God's arrangement with ancient Israel was based on a set of rules. It was based on, we 
on rulers. We would call it the Old Covenant, the Old Testament. But it wasn't so much an arrangement between God and a person. It was very much an arrangement between God and a people. It was an arrangement between God and his people, the, the children of Israel. And if I were to ask you, where in the Bible can you find a list of rules, most of what you would think, well, I, I can think of one place for sure, Ten Commandments. Everybody knows the Ten Commandments, or at least they know there is a list of Ten Commandments somewhere in the Bible. If you don't know anything about the Bible, you know there's the Ten Commandments. If you don't know anything about the Bible, you can probably name two or three of them. If you know a lot about the Bible, you could probably name seven or eight of them. And those of you in this room, well, you know nine of them, at least. And you also know that there's a whole lot more in books like Leviticus and Deuteronomy. And if we're not very careful, that Old Testament theology sort of creeps into our New Testament understanding. And our interaction with God gets boiled down to nothing about obedience, nothing but obedience. But again, the Old Testament was a covenant between God and a nation much more than it was a covenant between God and an individual. And the great thing is, when you study the Old Testament, like we do, you start seeing over and over and over again God hinting at, God pointing to a different arrangement, a new covenant, a better covenant, something wonderful, something new, something exciting that he's going to do through his own son. And that's the reason why we study the Old Covenant. That's the reason why we revere the Old Testament, because it points to something new and something different that God is going to accomplish through Jesus. And that's one thing that made Jesus and his teaching so different. He was pointing to something new, a new way to live, a kingdom way to live, a new covenant that includes all people, everywhere. <clears throat> you remember the night that Jesus was arrested, he was sharing Passover meal with his disciples, and Jesus started talking about rules. And Jesus started talking about commandments. And he says, I'm going to give you another commandment that I want you to obey. But this new commandment, it's not going to be a burden. In fact, it's going to be freeing. It's going to be life-giving. John chapter 13, a new command I give you. This is Jesus speaking. Love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, all men will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. Jesus said, I'm not going to give you a whole big list of things to do but I am going to give you one command, just one. I want you to love each other. And then he ratchets it way up. You know, he sets the bar really high. As I have loved you, I want you to love each other. And Jesus is saying everything's just gotten simpler. Everything's just gotten clearer. The currency that we're going to use in the kingdom, it's love. It's going to be the currency of the kingdom. Now, the gospel writer John is in that room that night that Jesus makes this statement. A couple hours later, John is going to be the only one that was in that room standing at the foot of the cross watching Jesus be crucified. Three days later, John is going to run to the tomb along with Peter. John's going to outrun him, and they're going to look into an empty tomb. 
A few weeks later, John is going to share a meal on the beach with Jesus. John is there when Jesus ascends back to heaven. John takes the responsibility of Mary, the mother of Jesus. John calls himself an eyewitness to everything that Jesus has said and done. And then years later, decades later, really, John is going to write a couple letters. And he wrote this in one of those letters, 1 John chapter 2. My dear children, I write this to you that so you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, and here's some good news, if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense. Your version might say we have an advocate. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And then the good news gets a whole lot better, especially for us. And not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. John is letting us know that everybody comes to God the same way. Through Jesus, the righteous one, who is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And then he goes on in verse 3. We know that we have come to know him, talking about Jesus, if we obey his commands. Is obedience important? Absolutely. John says, he's very clear on this, we have to obey the commands of Jesus. The man who says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar, and the truth is not in him. That is, if you say, okay, me and God, we're good, we're on good terms, but I'm not doing what Jesus told me to do, then me and God aren't on such good terms. Well, I know the Ten Commandments, but... What did Jesus tell me to do? But if anyone obeys his words, talking about Jesus, God's love is truly made complete in him. John tells us you had better pay close attention to what Jesus said and what Jesus asked us to do. And then John makes this huge statement. This is such a big statement he makes. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. It's a really big thing that John just says. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. Again, it just got easier. It just got more simple. We don't have to guess. We don't have to wonder. We just look at Jesus. We have the example. We have the illustration. Read the book of Matthew, the book of Mark, the book of Luke, the book of John. We can see what Jesus did. We see how he lived, how he walked. Verse 7, dear friends, I'm not writing you a new command, but an old one. And what I'm telling you, it's nothing new. Remember, John is writing this decades after Jesus ascended back to heaven. I'm not writing you a new command, but an old one, which you have had since the beginning, not the beginning of time, the the beginning of this revolution. The old command is the message that you have heard. And then John is going to get a little bit poetic. Yet I am writing you a new command. Okay, it's an old command, but I'm going to say it in kind of a different way that maybe you haven't thought of before. Its truth is seen in him. The truth that I'm about to share, you see the truth in Jesus. All you have to do is look at Jesus. Follow the example of Jesus. Its truth is seen in him and you. This isn't just a believe thing. This is a take action thing. This is a do something thing. Because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. And it's as if John is saying, it's going to work. This thing, this new command, this kingdom currency, 
it's going to work. In fact, it already is working. It's taking hold. It's gaining traction. The light is coming into the world. That light, the true light, is beginning to shine. And then John's going to get a little bit practical and a whole lot personal. Anyone who claims to be in the light, anyone who claims that me and God are good, anyone who claims to be walking as Jesus walked, anyone who claims to be in the light but hates his brother is still in darkness. You need to get your Bible out and you need to highlight that verse. You need to put a star beside that verse. You need to underline that verse. It's okay. It's not a sin. You can write in your Bible. You need to meditate over that verse. You need to pray over that verse. Because right there is where we come up with our loophole. Right there is where our workaround is. Because if I were to ask you in this room or you online, and I'm not asking you to do this, but if I were to ask you to do this, raise your hand if there's someone that you hate or if there's a group of people that you hate, raise your hand. Nobody in this room would raise their hand. No one would say, no, I I hate this person or I hate this group of people. No, I wouldn't say that. No. If we dug down a little bit deeper, you might say, well, there are some people that I don't really care for very much. There are people that I really don't like to be around. There are people that are, I know, the things they say and do, they're they're so ignorant, I, I don't even like to hear them talk. They don't look like me. They don't vote like me. They have a different idea of what a marriage is. They have a different idea of what a family is. Uh, There are people who make me very angry. Yes. Now, I don't hate them. I would never say that. You know, hate's a pretty strong word. I wish they'd disappear. (laughs) If I could press a button somehow and, you know, they're gone and I don't have to deal with them anymore, I'd press that button. But hate, no, no. I don't hate them. Because we know how politically incorrect it is to say, you know, I hate someone. But I don't want you to miss how important it is what John is saying here. So let me reword that verse just a little bit. If anyone claims to be in the light, but dismisses, or rejects, or considers inferior, pushes to the periphery, mistreats his brother, mistreats his sister, he's still in darkness. And John would tell you, I don't care how much you pray. And I don't care how often you come to church. And I don't care how big a check you write. And I don't care how many praise and worship songs you have on your playlist right now. And I don't care how many Christian memes you're sharing. If there is an individual, if there is a group of people that you consider less than, if there's an individual or a group of people that you discriminate against, you're in darkness. You are not in the light. And John, of course, who knew Jesus better than anyone, John wrote this letter and said, basically, you're kidding yourself. You're still in darkness. John wants us to know, if somehow we have deluded ourselves into granting ourselves permission to mistreat any person, we're living in darkness. But, (laughs) he's not finished yet. He says in verse 10, whoever loves his brother lives in the light and there's nothing in him to make him stumble. 
Again, that is a huge statement for John to make. He's basically saying, if you get the love thing right, you and God are pretty good to go. If you can figure out how to love your brother and your sister, you and God are going to be on good terms. The people, if you can love the people that you know, are really easy to love, if you can love the people who are a little bit more difficult to love, um, if you can figure that out, you are well on your way. You remember Jesus would say the same thing on the Sermon on the Mount. He said, you know, when you love people who don't love you back, when you do for someone who won't do back for you, uh, when you pray for your enemies, then you're acting like God. Verse 11, but whoever hates his brothers in the darkness and walks around in the darkness doesn't know where he's going because the darkness has blinded him. What John is telling us is mistreating other people causes a problem between us and God. When we mistreat someone else, God has a big problem with that. We're stumbling in the darkness. And by the way, you know this to be true. Isn't that what bitterness does? Isn't that what anger does, resentment? If you hate your brother, if you hate your sister, you're in darkness. And I'm going to go back and I'm going to let John remind you of why this is so important and why it is so true. Why this is a non-negotiable for someone who's trying to walk in the footsteps of Jesus. Why this is a place and this is an issue where we plant our flag. Remember what John said. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins and not for ours, not for only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. That person that you dismiss that group that you try to distance yourself from, that person that you really don't want to be around. John wants you to know Jesus Christ, your Savior, died for that person too. Everybody is the somebody that Jesus died for. And if you mistreat someone that Jesus died for, you are not walking in the light, you're walking in darkness. And while we might not like to admit it, we get it. We understand exactly how this happens and how it plays out because we know it in our own lives. You know, if I were to mistreat a favorite niece or nephew of yours, or if I were to mistreat a child of yours, or if I were to mistreat your wife, and then we get together and we have lunch, and I'm like, everything's fine, we're cool. There'd be a problem between us, right? You wouldn't like that. And if you were to mistreat one of my sons or my daughter, and if you were to mistreat any of my grandchildren, and if you were to mistreat my wife, you and I have a problem. And you know that's true. No, if you think I can mistreat someone that Tim's love and, Tim loves and we're still cool, we're not cool. I'm not good with that. I'm, I'm going to be upset about that. It's exactly what Jesus is saying. It's exactly what John is saying. That Jesus came to be an advocate for all mankind. This is no longer a covenant between a uh, favored nation. It's a new covenant between every single person on the face of the earth. He's the atoning sacrifice for all men everywhere. 
which means that we have lost our right to mistreat anyone, anywhere. John said, you can't hate your brother or sister and still walk like Jesus. Jesus says, a new command I give you, love one another. I've loved you, love one another. And here's something that you already know. The new covenant that Jesus uh, ushered in, it is way, way simpler. However, it is far, far more demanding. Because if I take Jesus at his word, and if I really try to understand and implement that idea of loving people the way Jesus loved me, I can't find a loophole in that. There's no workaround in that. There's no shortcuts to that. No escape clauses. In fact, the whole idea kind of keeps bringing us back to the question that we know the answer to, but we never want to ask, what does love require of me? And of course, the beauty of that is that we've already seen it modeled. You don't have to have a PhD in theology to know the answer to that question. Because all of the New Testament commands, all of those directions, all those do's this, don't do that, that are found in the New Testament, they're all basically the answer to that question. What does love require of me? Love your wife. Honor your parents. Take care of widows and, and orphans. Well, that's just what love requires of us, right? You want to know how to better love your wife? Put her first. That's what love requires of you. You want to know how better respect someone that you really have a hard time respecting? Put them first. Serve them. That's what love requires of you. Just ask the question, what does love require of me? Then do that. You don't have to even know chapter and verse. It becomes painfully clear. But it's so tempting... And so easy for us to fall in love with the rules. Because when we fall in love with the rules, then it makes it easy to dismiss people who aren't keeping the rules. And again, please hear me. I, I, I hope you're hearing me. I am not saying obedience is not important. Of course I'm not saying that. You know me. You've heard me preach a lot of times. Of course I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is, we've got to be not just focused on on believing right, we've got to be just as focused on loving well. And when we believe right, we will love well. That's how it works. Um, you know, I started this thing by saying we all have kind of a distorted view of God, that none of us have God completely figured out. That's why we keep reading. That's why we keep studying. That's why we keep praying, hopefully keep growing. There are things in the Bible that I wrestle with. And there are some things in the Bible that I, I wrestle mightily with. That question is not one of them. What does love require of me? I can always come up with that answer. I always know what love requires of me. I don't always do it. And I don't always want to do it. But I know the answer to that question. And again, I think that's John's whole point. You know, Jesus said, love one another as I've loved you. And then he showed us exactly what that looks like. 
We've seen it. We've seen it modeled in the life of Jesus. And then in his gospel, John would, would write our, our motivation for doing what love requires of us. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. It is far less complicated, but it is far more demanding. But if you're going to call yourself a Christian, that's where we have been called to walk. It's what we've been called to do. To ask every single person that we meet, the people who are really easy to love, the people who are very difficult to love, the people who we think are impossible to love, what does love require of me? This is how people will know that you're my disciples. By the way you love one another. I'm going to put Dave on the spot for just a minute. I'm going to ask him just where he's sitting to lead us in one verse of they will know we are Christians by our love. Um, we are one in the Spirit. We both have words to that. And then after one verse of that, I want to close us in a prayer. We are one in the Spirit. We are one in the Lord. We are one in the Spirit. We are one in the Lord. And we pray that our unity may one day be restored. And they'll know we are Christians by our love. By our love, yes, they'll know we are Christians by our love. Father, I thank you for loving us first and loving us best. Father, would you give us the wisdom and the courage to know what to do with what we've just heard you say in your word. I pray that we would be a group of people who are, are better learning what it means to love well. I pray that people will look at us and see the love of Jesus in us. It's in his name that I pray. Amen. We've got a song that we're going to sing together uh, to get us ready to share the Lord's Supper together. <laughs>